Hi everyone and welcome once again to uh, the podcast, um, A Light Unto My Path. Uh, I'm your host Howard Sides. We're uh, continuing our study again in the book of Revelation and we are in the the midst, I guess you'd say, in the middle of chapter 7 and we're going to begin with uh, verse 9 today and we've discussed uh, chapter uh, 7 verses 1 through 8 uh, talked about God's provincial care for his own versus, well actually it was uh, verses 1 through 3 was God's provincial care for his own so we're in the middle of this second thought God's personal claim for his own and verses 4 through 8 talks about those sealed to defy the totality of Satan's spiritual dominion and that talks about the 144,000 Jews that will be sealed now today we're going to pick it up in verse 9 uh, through verse 12 and talk about those saved to deny the totality of Satan's spiritual dominion. And so, uh, yeah, I'm not going to take the time to read them again, but uh, verses 9 through 12 is our uh, portion that we're going to be talking about. But you know what? It, it's not that long. I, I'll read it. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. Now after this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts, and fell before the throne on their faces and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. All right, so that's our passage. Now, uh, those that were sealed, talked about in verses 4 through 8, were specifically and only Jewish uh, in nature. Uh, No Gentiles were involved in that. Here, in verses 9 through 12, it would be the ones that are saved to deny the totality will include Gentile and Jewish people. Gentile and Jewish people. So in verse 9, it starts off after this. And that refers to a different time period, sometime after the sealing of the 144,000. It could be immediately, which I'm pretty sure is was taking place, or there could be some time allotted for it. I don't know. It doesn't say, but it just says after this. Uh, So the first point we're going to talk about this, uh, uh, well, there's three points. Uh, The three points being, where are they standing? What are they saying? And who are they stimulating? So we'll talk about the first one. Uh, Where are they standing? Well, the first thing we note about where they're standing is, first of all, their number. We are not given a specific number, but it does tell us uh, that it's an amount so great that no man could number them. John looked, he said, I behold and lo, a great multitude which no man could number. So it's not that John just couldn't count about what he was seeing. He makes reference to the fact that no man could number how many there were. God only knows how many. So that's their number. Now, second of all, we notice uh, something about their nationalities. Uh, The next phrase, it says, of all nations. Now, this is our first clue that this group does not represent the church. 
in Revelation 5 and verse 9, we hear the words of the 24 elders representing the church in saying, For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. The church will no longer have any ties to any group or representation on earth. Now the multitude here in verse 9 are still connected with their associations on earth as shown by the word of all nations. Not out of all nations, but of all nations. So we also see an incredible statement about the magnitude and effectiveness of the witnessing ability of this small remnant of these 144,000. The little word all in the Greek means the whole of all nations. That means somebody out of every single entire nation is going to end up being saved by the witness of these 144,000 Jews. Amazing. Um, the word kindreds is the Greek word phule. Phule, that's P-H-Y-L-E. P-H-Y-L-E. It refers to those who are descended from a common ancestry, such as a race, a lineage, a kindred, or a clan, a smaller division within a nation. Uh, examples of that would be um, an Irish clan, uh, the Basques, which are northern Spain and southern France, or another group would be the Montagnards, which are a group of uh, specific Vietnamese people. Uh, the next word is people, which is the Greek word laos, that's L-A-O-S, laos. It refers to a people or community as a mass, without reference to its origin or division. Uh, an example of that would be Southerners or Yankees, or Englishmen, <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, tongues is the Greek word glossa, G-L-O-S-S-A, glossa. This refers to a separate distinction from kindred and people as a group associated by speaking the same language, although not of the same nation or race or clan. An example of that would be French or Spanish. Um, so their number, their nationalities, and then their nature. And their nature uh, is mentioned... Yeah, this goes on for... Okay, so first of all, let's just talk about their position. All right, it says stood before. This is another distinction from the church. The 24 elders who represent the church are spoken of as sitting in chapter 4 and verse 4, while this group is always standing. Now, the fact that they are standing indicates that they are not complete and are still working as indicated later in verse 15. Uh, the throne. This scene is taking place in heaven. This group are saved by the witness of the 144,000. This great multitude we see are the spirits of those martyred during the great tribulation. There has not been a rapture of their physical bodies yet. So these are the spirits. Easy enough to understand. Verse 14, these are they which came out of great tribulation. So that's why we know they're out of the great tribulation because it tells us they're out of great tribulation. As mentioned above, they will only be complete when their bodies are resurrected to meet their souls, which are already in heaven, which will take place a little bit later. 
Um, and then the phrase, and before the Lamb. This shows their acceptance. They are made righteous as indicated by their white robes in the next section. All right, so um, their nature, position, possession. I'm trying to see if there's another. There's not. Okay. All right, yeah. So we notice under their nature, we talk about their position. Now let's look at their possession. First of all, they are virtuous. It mentions they are clothed with white robes. Now this represents the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And this also shows that they are in fact saved. There can be no argument to that. They are saved. You, you just can't deny. Um, next thing, they are victorious. It says they are carrying palms in their hands. Palms in their hands. <clears throat> now the use of palms to symbolize victory was utilized by the Greeks and Romans but was not a Jewish practice. So what use did the Jews have for palm branches? Uh, these are basically Gentile people, but the symbology is important. So uh, we'll see about that. Uh, there's a twofold aspect to notice here in Leviticus chapter 23, and I need to turn to that. A twofold aspect. Leviticus 23. Verse 40 through 44. Leviticus 23, verse 40 through 44. It says, And ye shall take you on the first day the bows of goodly trees, branches of palm trees, and the bows of thick trees, and willows of the brook. And ye shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. And ye shall keep it a feast unto the Lord seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths seven days. All that are Israelites born shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And Moses declared unto the children of Israel the feasts of the Lord. So, Leviticus 23 established the seven feasts of the Lord. Uh, the first one it mentions is the feast of the Passover, for verses 4 through 5. Uh, the feast of the unleavened bread, verses 6 through 8. The feast of the first fruits, verse 10 through 14. The feast of the wave loaves, verses 15 through 22. The feast of the trumpets, verses 23 through 25. The feast of the day of atonement, verses 26 through 32. And then the seventh is the Feast of Tabernacles, the ingathering, verses 33 through 43. Each feast was designated a specific length and time of the year and all took place within a one-year cycle. All right? So what we were reading about was um, evidence of the Feast of Tabernacles there. So um, the twofold aspect of this feast. First of all, it's natural. The palm leaves were significant during the Feast of Tabernacles as a celebration that the year's work was done. The sowing days were over and the reaping was complete. So it was natural. Second of all, it was also historical uh, for three reasons. Remembrance, rejoicing, and reflection. 
remembrance in the fact that they were told he told them that they would be staying in booths and these booths are basically tents and the idea is symbolic in that while they dwell in tents for seven days it reminds them of their passage through the wilderness and being brought out of bondage from Egypt Uh, second is in rejoicing the celebration for the fact that God brought them out of the land of Egypt yet did not leave them in the wilderness and in tents but rather had a plan for them which was the promised land. Uh, <clears throat> second of that, God didn't leave them guessing but told them up front where he was leading them to specifically. And we know, we know that because it tells us in Exodus chapter 3, verse 8. And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land and a large, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. There was no doubt where they were going. Uh, The third point, uh, historical point, was reflection. And Alexander McLaren's book, Expositions of Holy Scripture, uh, says this, and I quote, So the other idea comes out that they would, that they who have passed into that great presence, look back on the darkness and the dreariness, on the struggles and the change, on the droughts and the desert, on the foes and the fears, and out of them all find occasions for rejoicing and reasons for thankfulness. There can be no personal identity without memory, and the memory of sorrow changes into joy when we come to see the whole meaning and trend of the sorrow. The desert was dreary, solitary, dry, and parched as they passed through it. But like some grim mountain range seen in the transfiguring light of sunrise, and from the far distance, all grimness is changed into beauty, and the long dreary stretch looks, when beheld from afar, one unbroken manifestation of the divine love and presence. Unquote. So, still, after what these martyrs are going to go through, It has to be accepted that they are seen as victorious based on what Christ says about them later on in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 5. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. All right. So that uh, shows us uh, where are they standing. Verse 10 tells us what they are saying. Verse 10. Uh, And let's see. What they are saying is three things. First of all, thank God for his grace. Thank God for his government. And then thank God for his gift. So the first one, thank God for his grace. Salvation to our God. Notice they are not singing here, but are saying. It is not until chapter 14 when we first hear them singing. Revelation 14, 3. And they sung, as it were, a new song. So there's their new song that they'll be singing. Now the difference would be here, they are just spirits, and later on in chapter 14, they are complete with their resurrected bodies. And that, that's, I just realized that, but those in heaven right now are not able to sing because they're not complete bodies, unless their bodies were resurrected with Christ. You know, when we talked about that, they could probably sing. Hmm. That's interesting to note. All right. 
Uh, so that's the statement of it, uh, their salvation, their thanks to God. So now there's the subject. While the subject of the church is one of praise, here the subject is one of deliverance. The focus of the church in Revelation 1 and verse 5 and then in chapter 5 and verse 9 is on the redeeming blood of the lamb that was slain. Here the focus is on the salvation of God sitting on the throne. The difference is the circumstances. This throne is one of righteousness instead of mercy. The Lord is seen as executing judgment instead of being slain for sin. Christ's return to this group is seen as deliverance from earthly tribulation more than the redemption of his blood. All right, so that's thank God for his grace. Now thank God for his government. Uh, the phrase which sitteth upon the throne. Throughout the terrible tribulation they face, uh, we can understand they must have asked the question put forth under the fifth seal, how long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on earth? It's just human nature to ask that question, especially when you're hurting, you know, being tortured and that sort of thing. They must have felt God had abdicated his throne, but now they see him sitting there. So <clears throat> they, they, you know, see him. All right. Uh, the third point, they thank God for his gift. And it says, and unto the Lamb. Now, their deliverance was not based on their willingness to be martyred uh, <clears throat> or the fact that they endured to the end or that they sacrificed everything they had or that they came through great tribulation. Their deliverance was based singularly on the Lamb and they know it. They know it. So that's what they are saying. All right, verse 10. Now, verse uh, 11 through 12 tells us uh, who they are stimulating, who they are stimulating, verse 11 through 12. Uh, now, while it is a great thing to cause others to join in worshiping and praising God, it is still a far better thing to cause those who, are, who surround God's throne to join you. So, you know, they elevated even those around the throne to notch it up a little bit, all right? So, uh, we see here there's the angels, the elders, and the four beasts. And, and the, the phrase that they use in verse 12, it starts and ends with amen. Now, the first is an agreement with the praise of the great multitude, and the last is an acceleration of their own praise to God. Now, can you imagine what John must feel as he sees and hears hundreds of millions of angels, uh, the 24 elders, the four beasts, all praising God at once and in harmony uh, with what's being said here, even with these that are martyred. Now, <clears throat> seven praises are noted here. First, blessing. That's the source of all blessings. God is the source of all blessings. Uh, glory, which reflects his divine perfection. Wisdom is seen in creation, government of the world, and the plan of salvation through his son. Thanksgiving for all mercy and favor enjoyed by men and creatures alike. Honor is due to him as creator, master, and father of all. Power in creating out of nothing, supporting the whole universe, and in saving and preserving his own people. Might, as in the almighty God, the strength of Israel, the rock of ages, the everlasting strength. Now note, angels are never portrayed again, I've said this, uh, in the Bible as singing, but are always speaking, praising, or saying. 
Singing is an expression of praise connected with deliverance. When you go through the law of first mention, uh, in other words, if you want to find the definition of a word, uh, you go back to the beginning the first time it's mentioned in the Bible. Singing is first used in Exodus 15, 1. Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord and spake, saying, I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. Angels are created beings who have never been delivered. So we see that. Okay, so um, I'm going to stop here because this next section uh, is another big one, which, is be, which will be uh, verses 13 through 17, God's principal concern for his own. All right, so chapter 7, uh, we've got through the first two points. The first one being God's providential care for his own, verses 1 through 3. And then God's personal claim for his own, verses 4 through 12. So the next episode, we'll try and get verses 13 through 17, and that'll um, take care of chapter 7 in our study. All right, so uh, once again, I thank you for joining me on today's episode. And I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you gained some knowledge out of it, uh, maybe gained a blessing out of it. And uh, we'll see you on the next episode, okay? God bless you, and thank you once again for listening.